0: Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 39. And so last time we were together, we were in Psalm 37, and there's a lot of repetition that takes place in the remaining 20 verses or so that were in that Psalm. Psalm 38 is known as a penitential Psalm. We did that just a few weeks ago as we looked at Psalm 32. And so today I decided to look at Psalm 39. And this is a little bit of an unusual psalm in the sense that there's very little indication about the circumstances or the need that prompted these words to be written. We also understand for the first time in the Psalter that the name Jeduthun is introduced. He is one of David's choir directors, that is is mentioned in the book of 1 Chronicles. And so as you read this psalm, as I read through this psalm, in some respects... It struck me as looking into someone's personal journey and having no background and no context into what it is that you were about to read. But you try to piece together clues from what you read that helps to give greater clarity about the potential circumstances that cause these words to be written. That brings about a lot of speculation as you read through and you try to guess and figure out and put pieces together. And we can often come to a wrong conclusion. But as we read through these words, I hope that in the end that we learn something significant without understanding in greater detail the circumstances that prompted this psalm to be written. This is a psalm of David, it's considered a personal lament, and these words would have been put to music and used in public worship or perhaps in David's own private worship as you see the instruction, the superscription for the choir director, Jeduthun. You also see sprinkled into the psalm the word Selah, which means one of several things. Potentially it may mean a pause, it may mean a crescendo or a musical interlude. And so the idea when you see the word "sela," it means that you're to contemplate what you have read or in, the, in worship what you have sung this far. So as we look at these words together, what I want to say at the very beginning is that the circumstances that prompted this is really not not what is so important. Some believe, as we'll see in the first section here, is that David is lamenting the seemingly privileged life that the wicked live. Others think, as we get into the middle section of the psalm, that perhaps David is thinking about life and its meaning and its shortness, and we really can't know for certain what David means in the latter part of the psalm, you see this confession that takes place. And so some think that perhaps God's hand was on David in such a way that it prompted him to pen these words under great distress. We really don't know the circumstances, but hopefully we will learn something about this as we go through this. So Psalm 39, we'll read the entire Psalm, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll look at this in three different sections. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent, I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me, while I was musing the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days, let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Verse 7, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand. I am perishing. With reproves you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart, and am no more. So the first section we're going to look at here is David's frustration. Again, we don't know the specifics about what it is that has captured David's heart's attention in such a way. But as you read through these first three verses, you can see the intensity with which this thing has gripped him. First of all, we're going to look at the fact that he is greatly perplexed at whatever this problem is, this unanswerable, this unsolvable, this unfair thing, whatever it might be. David is absolutely perplexed at this thing. Verse 1, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. And so David is dealing with a significant inner turmoil. He is so bothered that he states that if he were to speak out out loud, his words would be sinful. He will guard his ways, he will guard his tongue, meaning that he is using every ounce of self-control that he has because he fears that what he would speak would potentially be displeasing to God, potentially giving ammunition to the enemy that is around him, the wicked, the ungodly, who would very likely hear his words. And so in his current state of mind, he would spew forth words that would communicate something to those around him that would be unbecoming of him and inconsistent with who he knew the Lord to be. The wicked are every present to hear what spews forth from our mouth. Now you and I get perplexed by a number of things in our lives. It could be any number. It could be the government. It could be the state of our finances. It could be relationships. It could be our health. It could be anything that greatly perplexes us. And what we need to recognize here is there's great benefit in exercising self-control so that what we say doesn't communicate something inconsistent about the God we profess to love and serve. Number two, not only is he perplexed, he is overwhelmed. Verse 2, I was mute and silent, I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. You can see the intensity that takes place as we progress through this first section. The impact from his inability to express in words this frustration he is dealing with has increased, and it is having a negative impact on him. Countenance would probably be very obviously depressed perhaps very short-tempered, perhaps very unwilling to engage anybody in any meaningful conversation. He had no motivation for doing anything of value, anything good, because he had become consumed by this inner turmoil. His every thought was fixated on whatever this thing was that was creating this frustration for him. This word sorrow here is understood as emotional pain, not from loss, but from what he observes, this thing that is unanswerable and unsolvable to him. Now, you've seen people who are overcome with sorrow because of great loss. This is David's experience, not because of something he's lost, but because of the way this thing has absolutely gripped his heart. He wants to speak about this frustration, but he fears he will be misunderstood and give his enemies ammunition against him or against the Lord. Thirdly, as we see this intensify even more, he is angry. Verse 3a, My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. His heart was hot and the fire burned. It's a way of expressing an intense internal anger. Now, I don't know if you get angry. You probably do. I don't know if you get intensely angry. You might. I can get intensely angry. I know what it is to have some rage going on over something that's not working the way I think it ought to, or the way that it should. And it can be the simplest of things. It could be that little screw that just won't go in the hole, no matter how many times you adjust the screw and wiggle the angle of the screwdriver, it just doesn't want to go in. And then get really hot about something as ins- insignificant as that. But something has David's attention in such a way that he is just on fire with anger, over this thing, and his inability to express in words what it is he thinks and what it is he feels about this thing. This indicates that David's frustration has got to the point of total consumption. The more he thought about this, the more exasperated he became. You know, there's no shortage of things that you and I can fixate on in our world, in our culture, in our government, perhaps even in our own individual life. And if we will dwell on that thing, we can get so consumed by it that it's going to have a negative impact on our life. David has questions. He has unresolved concerns. He has some kind of a problem. He's completely focused on it. And it is consuming his very life. And then we read in the second part of verse 3, Then I spoke with my tongue. As we'll see later on, this Vented anger and frustration that David felt was finally untapped by God himself and it flows forth in this prayer. So the eventual outlet for all that was bothering David is not communicate, excuse me, is communicated to God in prayer. We can get overly concerned about what the specific issue is and miss the most significant aspect of this psalm and that is prayer. Prayer. So the question is, is it time to pray? When something, someone in your life has got you so consumed that you're absolutely fixated on it and it's making you angry within, is it not time to pray? So whatever is frustrating us, we need to pray. Whatever is consuming us mentally and emotionally, we need to pray. Whatever it is that is angering us to the point that our heart is hot, it's time to pray. It's possible that the content of David's prayer tells us what the issue is. It's also possible that the content of David's prayer is a result of God snapping David out of his self-focused problem and gaining spiritual perspective about himself. Now we can only speculate again about the circumstances of what David was so consumed with. My personal opinion is that you don't find the specifics within the psalm. I believe that there's something outside of David that is mentioned in this psalm that has got him so gripped that he has lost sense of who he is and of who God is, and this is what takes place in the remaining two sections, is this realization that comes across in David's life. So number two, we look at David's request. So David says in the first three verses that the wicked are around him. He's very careful about what he says. Therefore, he is silent. He's guarding his mouth because he doesn't want to say anything that would be sinful. And so instead of blasting the people David was angry with, potentially, or laying out the issues in great detail, or complaining to God or complaining about God, David prays a very different prayer. I believe that what David prays is very simply this, give me perspective. Think about that. Think about the things that can consume us to the point of searing anger, And ask God to give me perspective. I can guarantee you, when I am boiling at the screw that won't go in the hole, I need perspective. Right? When you're in a slow line at Walmart and you're looking at this elderly person who's been given this job because they probably need the income, we need perspective. Whatever is going on that fixates our mind in such a way, we need to ask God for perspective. Verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days, let me know how transient I am. I want to tell you, if that question doesn't give you perspective, I don't know what will. Think about that. Make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days, let me know how transient I am. Now David is not asking God to tell him how long he's going to live. He's not asking God for a sneak peek into his future. David knows that whatever it is that is consuming him pales in the comparison of the true meaning of life. And this is what I think takes place as David is just boiling over with anger and as he unleashes his tongue in prayer to the Lord, God begins to speak and reveal and give to David insight of what he already knows. Have you ever had somebody quote to you truth that you already know, and when you hear it, you go, yeah, I needed to be reminded of that. I had I lost sight of the fact that God is sovereign. He is in control, right? So we need to be reminded of truth that we already know. And I believe through the illumination of the Spirit's work in David's life, he began to get a perspective about what it was that was gripping him. And that contrast is over The length of days and the brevity of life. The phrase, let me know how transient I am, indicates that David already knows that life is short. This isn't something new for him. He needs to regain a proper perspective so that he is not consumed with that which is, in the end, not that important. Life is not about having all the answers. It's not about enjoying a trouble-free life. It is not to be a a comparison of the blessings I have as compared to the wicked around me or to the new Christian or to the other person I don't think believes it. That's not what life is all about. Our lives are to be lived for the glory of God, to fulfill His purposes, and to enjoy our divine union with Him. When we focus on the minuscule we will lose sight of our true purpose. Do you believe that? You've heard the the old expression, you lose the forest for the trees. Or is that backwards? The tree through the forest is one of those. I forget. That's why you shouldn't do things spring in the moment. But we lose sight, Tony's words, like the bug on the windshield. You focus on the bug, and you lose sight of all the scenery around you. Isn't that right? So when we focus on the minuscule, we lose sight of our true purpose. So as David asks for perspective, he's reminded by the Lord that which he already knows. Number one, life is short. Verse 5a, Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths. Well, the handbreadth was one of the smallest units of measurement in Israel, we think about life in terms of years, and for us reaching a good old age of 80 or 90, boy, that's really living, isn't it? That is a long life. You know what a handbreadth is? A handbreadth is four fingers. This was the unit of measurement that the Hebrews used to understand a handbreadth. So, what you need to do, what I need to do, is we hold up our four fingers and we say, This is the length of my life as God sees it. That's perspective, isn't it? See, I thought about this as I was reviewing. I, I don't really get a sense of my aging. I mean, I can see it when I look in the mirror, I can feel it when I move around more than I should. I see it, I'm reminded of it when I look at the faces of my children who are now all grown. But I don't really have a true grasp of the brevity of life as God sees it. How much does having a perspective like this change how worked up we can become over little things or over unanswerable things or unresolved problems That we face. Think about it like this. Let's just say that this represented 80 years. All right? Just saying. If you're 20, if you're 40, if you're 60, If you're 80, you see how short life really is when you get a visual picture of a hand breath and the way David uses that. So we need to be reminded what helps us gain perspective is that life is short. Number two, life is not about self. Verse five B and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Now, let me say this in the very beginning. This is not a commentary on the value of man. This is not a statement on our unworthiness. This is a statement as we think about the reality that life is short and as God looks at our lifetime, at the span of our life, verse 5b says, my lifetime as nothing in your sight. God's perspective is very, very different from ours. He is not defined by time. God looks from eternity past all the way into eternity future as a singular event, and our lives, our individual lives, are to be viewed in the context of God's perspective of eternity as God sees our lives. If I were to put a picture up on the screen, and it be one of these beautifully, beautifully decorated white sand beaches, and say, our life is but one grain of sand in the scope of an endless horizon of beach. Life is short, and life is not about self. It isn't that our lives are unimportant, it's that our lifespan is insignificant before the Lord. That doesn't mean that we can live our life however we want. It doesn't mean that we live our lives as foolish people, but it just means that in God's perspective, our lifetime is nothing. So it's very natural and very normal for you and I to live a very self-absorbed life. And in this self-absorbed state, we can easily lose sight that our lives are not about ourselves, but instead are about living and serving for God. We read in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? means I've I died in Christ, right? And it is no longer I who live that Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, that's perspective on the purpose of life. Similarly, in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. You see, that's perspective when we get consumed about our little insignificant lifetime in God's perspective. So the cure for self-absorption is the, the perspective that we need is that life is not about self, but it's about God, no matter how long of a life that you and I are going to live. Now, David takes what he knows to be true about himself, and now he makes this general application to mankind in whole. So as we get to this portion in the psalm, and as we get to this application, there is a bit of a commentary on the value of this self-absorbed life That is dictated by and ruled by me, myself, and I. So, David accentuates our understanding of the vast difference in the way man evaluates his lifespan in comparison to the way that God does. So, letter A man's life is a breath. Verse 5C Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. I was touched when Ken and and Perry and I prayed before the message this morning. And Ken said the exact same thing with a different set of words as what we read in this. At our best, our life is a mere breath. You know, on a cold winter's day, you can go outside and you can take a big, deep breath and you can blow and you can see your breath go out in front of you and as quickly as it goes, it disappears into nothing, right? That's our lifespan. That's our lifetime on this earth. How much does that reality change our perspective about how we live our life? Even the longest of lives is but a breath in God's sight. The best life lived apart from God's plans and purposes really won't accomplish anything of great significance. The wicked that would hear David utter in sin this anger and this frustration would not be benefited by hearing David's venting. What they would need to hear is the reality that life is short and your life is just simply a breath. Now, we enjoy all the modern conveniences afforded to us in our lives today, think about it. air conditioning, electricity, running water, computers and internet and cell phones. Uh, the ability to contact people in any part of the world by picking up a little pocket phone and calling. We, we enjoy all those things. But the, what do these things mean in the grand scheme of life? And what do they matter in the scope of eternity? What, what do they matter? Nothing. Isn't that right? It isn't that we should not enjoy these things, but these things don't define our lives as believers. A man who is strong, a man who is self-assured, a man who is successful by the world standards, is still going to live a life that is a mere breath as God sees it. Letter B, man's life is an image. Verse 6a, surely every man walks about... As a phantom. The word phantom here is translated as image. It's a term employed for statues of gods and kings in the ancient Near East. It could also be representative of idolatry when you're worshiping an image rather than the one true God. It's the same word that is used in Genesis one, twenty-six and twenty-seven, where God says, Let us make man in our image. This is the idea. We are created in the image and the likeness of God, but man's importance is dwarfed in comparison to God's. We are created in his image, but we are a mere shadow of who God really is. The implication is that humans are not the real thing, but only an empty copy of themselves. Think about that. A self-absorbed life, a life that is lived with no regard for its brevity, with no idea about our best life being lived in service to God, is living a life that is only an empty copy of themselves. That can't be any more true for the children of God. And we need to recognize that. As the images of the false God in Isaiah cannot move, all the idols that are there... They cannot take care of themselves or save those who worship them. So these empty human images can accomplish nothing of consequence on their own. Do you believe that? Apart from the work of God in our life, we can't accomplish anything. Apart from our divine union with God, we live out the fullness of this empty shadow of ourselves. That's why we need to live with the proper perspective that life is short And it's not to be lived for self, but it's to be lived in service to God. Letter C. Man's life is vanity. 6B. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them in. This is one of the verses that some believe that this is a lament against the wicked who seem to be flourishing. So the mass of humanity is consumed with getting more. I've said this before. More is never enough. Right? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, think about it. More is never enough. The word uproar here communicates the intensity that man has in this need and in this desire to accumulate all the possessions that he can. It's what defines their lives. It's what makes life most important. And the pursuit of that kind of fulfillment in this life is the epitome of living out an empty shadow of our true self. Man's furious efforts may give him status and wealth but even with all of the accomplishments that man might get and with all of the material possessions he might acquire, he shares the fate of all man. Man is mortal and cannot control what happens to to his possessions after his death. His inability to control, to know, and to understand life outside his own limitations characterizes man's fragile existence, and the vanity in life that can consume us. This is why we would read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And yet this tends to be what defines the lives of most. I want to accumulate all that I can, so I can enjoy all that the world has to offer, but when we die, we don't control what happens to that. The ultimate value in life and appreciation of life must be grasped within a full knowledge of its temporary nature coupled with an understanding of how God views our life. For you and I to have the proper perspective to pursue the greatest thing in life, we need to understand that life is very, very short. It's just but a hand's breadth. It's not to be about self, it's to be about God. And when we don't make it about God, then we experience the emptiness that the world has to offer and the futility of a life that is pursuing something that is temporary that we can't take with us. Now, the last section we look at here, number three, we look at David's true prayer. Now, this middle section is a request. It is a prayer of sorts, but this is a more formal prayer that we would recognize as David really makes these significant requests before the Lord. So as David has been consumed as something that has severely angered him, and as he has made this request for perspective, these things to be reminded to him that he already knew, we see this more formal prayer that flows in these final verses. So in light of life's brevity and the futility of human endeavor, David prays for four things. Number one, David prays for clarity. Verse 7, And now, Lord, for what do I want? My hope is in you. As he's considered his problem, as he's been reminded of this perspective, he makes this request For clarity. It's a rhetorical question that David asks, and he answers immediately in the psalm. I would imagine in prayer, we might be on our knees, pouring out our hearts to the Lord for some time, and God gives us the clarity that we need. He asks the question, And now, Lord, for what do I want? My hope is in you. The word wait there means to hope in or to long for And so David says, so what is it that I hope in? What is it that I truly long for? And he answers the question, it is you. It is not resolution. It is not judgment. It is not justice. It is not the removal of the circumstance. What I desire, what I long for, what I am waiting for is you. David's life would not be defined by its brevity or by man's futility lived out apart from God, but by God's presence God's plans and God's purposes for David in particular. With that realization in mind, David prays for forgiveness. Verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions, make me not the reproach of the foolish. So David prays for forgiveness, not just for what was consuming him in the first three verses of this psalm that we've looked at, But David is praying for for forgiveness for any sin that he is guilty of. You see, David has a greater perspective of the trivial nature of his problem and the great and grand God that has loved him and secured his eternity. And so he prays for right relationship with God by asking for forgiveness. He wants to maintain a holiness of life, that will not enable the ungodly around them to mock God as a result of David's life. You know, when you and I see a professing Christian stray away, it should grieve our hearts that God could be mocked. We need to be mindful that the lives we live can be fuel to the ungodly around us who are looking for an opportunity to mock the God that we profess to know and to love. David doesn't want to become like the futile that we've looked at. He restates the problem from verse 2 as he says in verse 9, I have become mute, I do not open my mouth, because it is you who have done it. David now understands that God is the one that has not only given him restraint in not speaking, but in a sense God has actually sealed his mouth to protect David from himself. Anything that David would have said in that angered state would be construed as disrespectful to God or disrespectful about God in the eyes of the ungodly. So David had his mouth sealed by the Lord as he worked his self control into keeping himself from saying something that he would later regret. It was God's will for David to be silent. And then to turn to God and express his frustration. That's what he means when he says, It is you who have done it. It is you that has given me the restraint. It is you that have protected me from myself. You are the one that has done this. The third thing that David prays for is he prays for mercy. Verse 10. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand I am perishing. So the word plague is the same word for rebuke. David knows that his time of anger, his fixation on this problem, his frustration that grew out of that has brought the Lord's discipline into his life. He says he is perishing, meaning he feels like he is wasting away because he now senses this disconnect that he has between the Lord. He is opposed to God's plans and purposes. He has a spiritual posture of opposition to God and he recognizes that as something that he no longer wants to stay in. He's praying that God would be merciful towards him. He desires the gracious and merciful hand of God, not the hand of God that disciplines. Verse 11, "...with reproves you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him." Surely every man is a mere breath. David is restating what he's talked about in this middle section that we've explored. But particularly this speaks of the divine action of God against those who willingly remain in sin. The words reproof and chasten and consume all speak of God's way of correcting our sinful behavior or our sinful attitudes, those things that we refuse to relinquish to God, that we choose to cling to on our own, for our own reasons, and our own self-absorption, these become a problem, and God will discipline us for those things. In light of God's discipline, David restates that man is but a mere breath, unable to withstand God's retribution. The last thing that David prays for here is David prays for communion. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Verse 13, turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. David uses the words hear and give ear and don't be silent to communicate his need, his waiting for, his longing for this renewed sense of God's presence in his life. This period of of a sinful attitude that brought about intense anger in David's life has brought separation between he and the Lord. He says, I am like a stranger to you. I'm like a sojourner, one who travels in a land that is not his own. And that depicted the life of the Israelite. They were, they were visitors in a land until God gave it to them for their own possession. And this is what David is restating. I feel like... I don't have a rightful place with you. So, this would bring to David a renewed and cheerful heart, which is what he desired before his handbreadth of time on this life was over. It's an interesting psalm, and while we can't understand with great detail the circumstances that brought, brought it about, we can identify with and acknowledge this that there are all kinds of things in our lives that can grip us mentally and emotionally, will have a negative impact on our lives spiritually. But we need the perspective that our life is very, very short. It's not about ourself. It's about Him. It's about the One who loved us and saved us and called us to serve Him. And as we encounter these difficulties and these hardships in our lives, then we speak to the Lord, we cry out to Him, And we ask for God to renew to us His sense of presence, our real purpose, the joy that we know we have in Him. And when we do that, that thing that we have clung to so tightly, white-knuckled, we will let go and let God be God. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that there is a lot in life that can really get us angry. There are things that will overcome us and overwhelm us to such a degree that we have no true perspective about what our life is about. As we fixate on these things, we lose sight of this God of mercy and love that we know You to be. And we get so self-absorbed that we risk the discipline that comes from Your love. Father, bring to our mind those things that we allow to dominate us, government and politics, the wickedness in our culture, the irritations that exist within our relationships, all those things, Father, that really don't amount to very much in the end of it. Would you help us to be refocused on who you are and what you've done? Would you renew in us a desire to be set free from a life of self-absorption and a lived one that is dictated by our being crucified with Christ and allowing him to live his life through us. Thank you, Father, that you're merciful and gracious as we struggle through this. Would you help us to be more determined than ever to let you do the work in us you desire to do so that our lives will bring you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him.